you know, like all the things. By the time I was 11, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and put on birth control pills. And of course, in that wow. era, in the early 80s. That was unheard of. Uh -huh, exactly. And the do you, uh, you, if you know anything about the history of hormone therapies, uh, birth control pills were mega Way overdosed out of the beginning. Yeah. Way. way over the gate. By the time I was 14, I had my first diagnosis of cervical dysplasia. By the time oh I was 16, cervical God. cancer. Uh, thyroid dysfunction, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, they had working on the diagnosis of IBS, of rheumatoid, junior rheumatoid arthritis, all the things. And yet, here's the best part. You were a train wreck. The train wreck. <laughs> but the craziest part is no one, myself Goodness. included, my family included, no one ever said there's you're something's wrong. You're sick. Right. It was just like, oh no, you're just like apparently just deficient in this birth control pill or this digestive, you know, this um, Prilosec or this antibiotic or this, you know, this other like layer cake that was happening. So that so just people have that context right, of what was going on in my physical body, there was also something churning in my emotional body. And um, I will share this here. It's, it's always a little tenuous, a little, little intense, because the story is just that. It's a story, and it's, it's formed who I am. So I'm very grateful for all the things that have made me who I am today, even the very big challenges. But I came from extreme poverty. There was, you know, my family, I, you, I was the first to go to college or to plan to go to college. Um, extreme trauma of a lot of sexual, physical, emotional abuse. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. Rarely do we have an opportunity to bring somebody on the podcast and actually talk to somebody that has experienced cancer from a perspective of a patient and as a doctor. And that's what we actually have today. As you've heard me talk about before, what drives me as a physician is several principles, hope, heal, teach, serve, truth, trust, legacy, service. These are principles that I think are, they're, they're essential to the practice of being a physician, to medicine. And my theory is that being a patient sitting on the other side of the desk allows a doctor to get a perspective of medicine, of disease, of healing that you can't get otherwise. But beyond that, we have the opportunity to speak to somebody that is actually using that experience to change the trajectory, the vector of medicine, of cancer treatment today and moving forward. That individual is Dr. Nasha Winters. Aww. It is so nice to meet you. It is so good. I know you. I know At you. At this point, so. <laughs> we, we're like, we go way back now. That's right. No, so, I love it. It's so good. It's yeah. so good to be here. I love watching your podcast. I love watching your enthusiasm of taking Dr. Docere yeah. totally to heart, which means teacher. Yeah. And you are such an amplifier of the messages that need to be shared. 
Well, you know, what I, you and I have talked about this off the, off camera is that stories connect us. Yeah. You know, your, your husband, Steve talked about, you know, relationships, yeah. community. And when you look at all of those, it's the journey, it's the collective stories together that really, I think it binds us together. And so, you know, you have that experience. I've had, I've had a little bit of taste of that as well. And so I've seen what that means to be on the other side of the desk. And doctors would listen to that and go, oh, come on, it's just being a patient. But the thoughts, yeah. the emotions, the, what, the, the expectation or questions about the future. Yeah. What, what is my wife and kids going to do? Yeah. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do there? And then depending on the stage of life, it could be, I've not even begun to live. Right. And that's what we're seeing a lot today. Unfortunately. So, so what I wanted to do is really start off by, you know, first giving a quick background of how we met. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if you've not read, she's got several, she's a published author and, and quite, quite successful at it as well. Uh, her first book published in two, 2017 was The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Now it's, uh, I was surprised that it was published in 2017. I thought it was published a, a little bit a while ago, but a very recent uh, publication, but it's one that's really, I think, setting the stage, mm -hmm. helping to set the stage for a, a pivot, a change in medicine for cancer care. So I, I knew about the book. I knew about you. I knew about mistletoe. I knew about mm -hmm. you and all the work you had done there. I knew a little bit of your story, but then when I heard you speak at that mistletoe conference in Denver in mm -hmm. 2021, that's where I was like, okay, there's something unique about her mm -hmm. in how you got up there amidst the midst of many different medical doctors and in the audience were naturopathic doctors, medical doctors, but yet you really spoke the data mm -hmm. and you spoke it in a relational way that I've not heard before. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so you had a command of the information of the data unlike it. So for me, that experience changed my perception of you. And so that means that clearly you were put on this earth for a time such as this. And what you're trying to do is change perception, yeah. the trajectory of medicine. And I think it begins with your story, your journey. Again, I tell patients when they come and see me, not just what drives me, but I want to hear your story. I want to hear your journey because you can look at medical records yeah. and they don't, they don't no. tell a story. No. No. They don't tell a journey. It's like data. Visit data, visit data. Yeah. And it doesn't give you that human experience. Yeah. So I think just as I talk to our new patients, I think that applies to you. Let's hear mm -hmm. Nasha Winner's story. Uh, well, it's always weird to like have the camera like and the focus on me on that, because for me, I'm like you, I, the story is so big. I actually consider myself more of a story collector. Hmm. And, you know, humanity, we have evolved from storytelling. I mean, that's how before written language, we told stories. We learned through storytelling. We many, you know, we learned even as doctors, it was passed on through story. And, right. you know, like these in like Ayurveda, for instance, it was learned through song, which was basically story, like all these different places. So story is so critical. And that, to your point, when you look at a, a soap note, a you know, subjective, objective assessment and plan today, it's very drunk, 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 drunk. And at the end of it, you sit there and go, but who is this person? What is the story? And we don't have space or room for that in the standard model. And so 
that then segues into my own, which is, first of all, to get in the field of cancer, uh, it's not like I went, gosh, this seems like a really interesting career move for me. <laughs> I'll just jump right in. That seems like a way to start. Joy every day, <laughs> successes every day. Yeah, and then I'll do it as a naturopath to boot. And I'll decide to really go integrative. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because oh. you've touched on several different key components that were different that I didn't even know about. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you're wanting to go into medical school. Yeah, I was pre-med. I was biology, chemistry um, major. I was in the so my sophomore year of college. I was definitely, like, I knew exactly what my roadmap looked like. I was going to go to Baylor. That was going to be the thing. Like, this is the, I, this was, I had a plan. What is that saying? You have a plan and God laughs. I mean, that yeah, was. That's right, that's right. <laughs> you know, so, whew. So that was, that was my thing. And because, so part of my story that's important for people to know is I don't know if I ever knew health hmm. until my diagnosis and for the years following my, I should say for the years following my diagnosis. Now, that, that's a very interesting point because you don't know the value of something until you lose it. Yes. Yeah. So can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Well, I still, I mean, I, I, I've had so many stories from my mom tell, telling me things like, yep, the pediatricians, when I told them you were just pooping once a month, they just told me that was normal and that was just your pattern. <laughs> I mean, for the love of God, like seriously, there was that piece, the thing that she told, the other story I hear all the time, you were allergic to everything because God forbid that in Kansas in 1971, we would breastfeed. Mm. Right? We That's didn't. Right in the middle of that, no breastfeeding. Yeah, that was a big through the no breastfeeding phase. And so every formula I spit up, it made me sick. It caused me terrible GI issues until they settled on the one that did the least harm was soy formula. Oh yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which by then, so let's fast forward, like all, they put me on baby Prilosec by the time I was 18 months old, or the equivalent of that back in the, in the early 70s, because my digestion wasn't working. Like all the things that no one, no one saw that as a problem. They're just like, this is what you do. This is what you take. This is what you do. You don't do this, you do this. It just kept accumulating. So by the time I was nine, so this is now in the late 70s, early 80s, I start menstruating. Now. Today, that might, your listeners might be like, well, that happens all the time now. Normal and common are different things. It might be common today, but it's never been normal. That's and right. back in the late 70s, early 80s, it definitely wasn't normal or common. Right. No one questioned that. You know, like all the things, by the time I was 11, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and put on birth control pills. And of course, in that wow. era, in the early 80s. That was unheard of. Uh -huh, exactly. And the do, you, uh, you, if you know anything about the history of hormone therapies, uh, birth control pills were mega Way high, overdosed out of way, the beginning. Yeah, way. way over the gate. By the time I was 14, I had my first diagnosis of cervical dysplasia. By the time oh I was 16, cervical God. cancer. Uh, thyroid dysfunction, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, they had working on the diagnosis of IBS, of rheumatoid, junior rheumatoid arthritis, all the things. And yet, here's the best part. You were a train wreck. I was a train wreck. <laughs> but the craziest part is no one, myself included, my family included, no one ever said, "There's you're, something's wrong, you're sick. Right. It was just like, oh, no, you're just like, apparently just deficient in this birth control pill or this digestive, you know, this um, Prilosec or this antibiotic or this, you know, this other like layer cake that was happening. So that, so just people have that context right, of what was going on in my physical body, there was also something churning in my emotional body. And 
um, I will share this here. It's it's always a little tenuous, a little, little intense because the story is just that it's a story and it's, it's formed who I am. So I'm very grateful for all the things that have made me who I am today, even the very big challenges. But I came from extreme poverty. Mm. There was you know, my family. I, you, I was the first to go to college or to plan to go to college. Um, extreme trauma of a lot of sexual, physical, emotional abuse, a ton of um, you know addictions, incarcerations, violence, a lot of that thing. So when you do what's known as an ACE score, an Adverse Childhood Events Score, this is a study that shows that those exposed to child to certain traumas before the age of 18, the more yeses you have of this 10-part questionnaire, the higher your risk of chronic illness and cancer in young adulthood. So like this is, this was, we were starting to learn these things at this time that, hey, maybe childhood traumas, in fact, there was just a study this week, another one coming out on this, but I was a 10 out of 10 on the ACE score, right? I didn't know that until years later when I was in college, but just to give that context, the other part of the context was I tried to take my own life at the age of 16 and the age of 17. And um, yeah, it's, it's good because... I didn't, there was no hope. There was no other path. Mm -hmm. There was no way out except for out. Mm -hmm. I understand that place very well when you are given no, the feeling of no way out, no way through. And the uh, level of support for that, there was, everyone was in such a trauma space and just trying to survive that it was sort of a one for all, all for one Mm -hmm. vibe. You know, Um, and so that was and then those my basic just my basic living needs weren't being met. I had to get a full time job when I was 12 years old just to help pay rent. And so those were the types of things that I was coming from. And yet here's the crazy part. No one on the outside world would have even had an inkling that that was happening for me. You covered it up really well. I was so good at this. I was so good at the cover-up. Oh student body president, captain of my volleyball team, during like straight-A student, honors classes, advanced AP classes, all the things, wow. right? All the things. And so the whole world on the outside saw this incredibly capable, happy, joyful person. And the crazy part, I want people to hear, there was a thread of deep truth to that. But the cloud, the darkness that overtook that, it was a constant battle. And that dark cloud got got darker and darker and more and more broad. So by the time I left, I literally graduated high school and a week later moved far away. I moved to another state to go to college. And I kind of thought, well, I'll just get out of the toxicity and I'll be fine. But guess what? Wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) So even if I changed zip codes, I did not change the internal environment. Mm. I, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. And so by the time my symptoms were picking up and a few other traumatic experiences that happened to me in college, including, um, I was raped and I had an attempted rape and I had an attempted rape by somebody who was very high up in like a, the captain of one of our sports teams. And no one believed me of the process. And the, the things I was doing, I was working three jobs because I was first to go to college. I had to work. I was on Pell Grants. I had work study. I worked in the library. I waited tables. I worked in detox. I became a CNA. I literally worked a million different jobs to just pay the bills. I was also taking a 21-hour pre-med science load 
Which is and not easy. No. I mean, yeah. goodness gracious. And I had a scholar, a partial scholarship for volleyball my first year. Oh, really? So I was burning the candle at every, and I was sleeping an average of two to three hours a day in little increments of just naps. Circadian rhythm dysfunction. Yeah, circadian rhythm dysfunction. I should mention that my career in high school, my the, what paid my bills in high school was uh, working at Hot Dog on a Stick in the mall. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, so you were eating... Oh, wholesome food. A, a wholesome food and corn oil <laughs> with corn, which I now Local I Local food Exactly. Always. It took me until the late 90s to know that I was actually allergic to corn. And my corn was the only vegetable that we ate. And it's not even a vegetable. <laughs> I was thinking the same. Right? So I'm just like, I'm painting the picture for people to go, I understand. Because what happens is when suddenly you find yourself with a terminal diagnosis and everyone's like why would a 19 year old have a terminal diagnosis i want people to have context you and i were just saying before this recording context is everything oh everything right and so what happens is if i just showed up on your doorstep as a patient to a clinician and i just said here i am with stage four terminal ovarian cancer most people are just jumping into reaction mode and jumping on it yeah right never would they have evaluated for what i came from and through they would see no relevance in that. A hundred percent. And they still don't. Well, I know that's, that's because, yeah. you know, what I tell people, and, and you, I think you agree with this, you may look at it slightly different, the words, the physical aspect of cancer. Mm. I wonder if it's the last thing we see. The mental, the psychology, the emotional, those are what set the stage. And people like Dr. Lawrence Lachan, yeah. who just passed away like a year ago at 100 years old, he became a little controversial in his latter years, but his pivotal work in what the 50s and 60s showing that somewhere between six months and two years before a diagnosis of cancer, yeah. in his book, Cancer is a Turning Point, there was some major event. Right. And it's not that that was the event, it's often, a, it can either be a major traumatic event or it can be a cumulative you know, lots of little T's, lots of little traumas that then has like the straw right. that lands on that. And so I look at when I reflect back to the straw for me in the months leading up to my official landing in the hospital with my roommate rushing me in unconscious with a uh, oxygen stat of uh, in the 70s with um, a belly just massively distended with uh, complete little stick legs with an inability to eat or drink anything without throwing up and having excruciating pain when they finally looked under the hood and finally did a proper um, at that time they had an MRI that's what I had they did proper lab workup they did a proper physical exam and they realized I had a CA-125 of over 15,000. I had a full-on bowel blockage. How, are, My how, how young were you? I was 19. Okay, so we talked about yeah. this, and I, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but no, this, is this was a post from, you know, just a couple of days ago. Uh, wow. Major articles gone through all the media. Yep. Cancer is striking. Yep. More young people and doctors are alarmed and baffled. Yeah. So, <laughs> again, since you're 29 years old, this was just 10 years ago. No. But, <laughs> Here's this $20 bill. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My first job is not being a comedian, so, um, but, um, but that, yeah. that quote is emblematic of you. Yeah. Obviously so when I see that recently. quote, I'm like, the actual, yeah. you know, like really? So today people are thinking about it, but back then it would not even no, garner a thought. No, no. And this is where in, in, I guess, benefit of the doubt for this community, I was the zebra. Mm at the time, right? We talk about the zebras in medicine. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, this is what you mo mostly always see, but then you're always gonna get the outlier. Well, I was an outlier on an outlier, an outlier, an outlier, because they thought it was just 
worsening over the six months that I was landing in that ER every month for the six months leading up to my hospitalization. Worsening endometriosis. Exactly. Hundred percent. Like, oh, it's just your PCOS. Oh, it's just your IBS. Oh, it's just. And now it's oh, it's just your anxiety. Oh, it's just your histrionic female. Oh, it's just. Well, right. Not, that was a fun one. Yeah. If you had been a yeah. guy, they, they wouldn't be able to pull that Never, one out. Right. That's an, I just actually did a podcast with a woman <laughs> who's a, a, what is a neuro, a, a psycho neurophysiologist who talks about the disparities in healthcare around how we do kind of, um, gaslight oh, absolutely. the female, you know, and absolutely. I was being gaslighted on gaslighted at that time. Some of the most emotional patients I've ever had had been men. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious that you said that. So thank you for saying that. But that's the places I can appreciate as, especially as a clinician now looking back, especially at a time when this was not common nor normal. No. Um, it, it, like I can appreciate that, but I will tell you in the moment when they finally did the proper workup after me coming back over and over begging, begging for someone to, you know, to hear me, to see me, to do more, to ask more questions, to do more tests. I was dismissed over and over, ridiculed, shamed, blamed constantly. Um, it was just a pretty horrific time. In fact, um, I will be a little TMI. Everyone was like, ectopic pregnancy. You're dead. I'm like, uh, not sexually active. Like it was like these things where it was like, they could not even hear that. I was like, certainly they're like, it's gotta be PID. It's gotta be an ectopic pregnancy. All the things. They saw your name up on the ER board yeah, or the like, doctor's visit again. and they, they jumped to conclusion. 100%. They had in their mind yep. what they were going to do and yep. what they were going to say before they even walked in the yeah, door. They to had talk an agenda. You. They did not need my story. No. Mm -hmm. And so what was interesting that night, and this is probably part of what saved my life, is that night there was a different doctor on call, different guy in the ER, kind of a visiting one of those ER visitors. When he came in to tell me the news, because this is again, now this is in 91. So it was going to take a while to get the official diagnosis, which it took. And actually, it was October 21st of 1991 before the official diagnosis came through. My 20th birthday was September 30th, 1991. I landed in the hospital or the ER and then admitted um, two weeks before that in 1991. So it was the leaving my 19th year, moving into my 20th year when it was all happening. But this man came in crying, talk about emotional, because he had a daughter my age. Oh, dear. And so I, in the nature of who I am, and my put on the mask and be strong and be, I supported him through that process. And it was a very, it was like a disembodied, I can still remember that, that moment of like leaving my body and watching this as if I'm watching a movie mm -hmm. and just being there to console him mm -hmm. in this process as he is like, you're, you know, the reality was poor, uninsured, alone from extreme dysfunction with a mask that no one knew what was really happening in my life and world. I didn't want to go there. You said you had a bowel obstruction. I mean, a that's a life threatening, oh, yeah. immediate life threatening exactly. event. And we're talking full on sealed off, oh, not wow. a, not a partial. Yeah. And so what was interesting is fast forward. So that moment he said, this is what's going on. There was it, it tiny, tiny town, Durango, Colorado. There were no, like there was a tiny little oncology office. I had a consult with them. They're like, well, there's nothing we can do because my also I forgot to mention my organs were in failure, so my kidney function shut down, my liver function shut down. So they were worried. They're like, yes, you need treatment, but one dose of treatment will kill you. Um, the the fluid balance. I mean, now I understand because now I'm a medical, so I understand what was going on. I didn't understand then. They just were like it will kill you if we give you a treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, now I understand all that in retrospect. 
Um, so they basically said, bowel rest, go home, sip on fluids. Here's a script for a million different meds. Here's a script for what, because back then hospice wasn't a thing in my community, but they had like a palliative care type of op offering. And that's what they sent me to. Then I asked the doctor, well, with treatment, what am I looking at? He goes, well, with treatment, we're looking at three months. And I'm like, so without treatment, what are we looking at? And he goes, about three months. And I can remember how like nonchalant. And then it was very confusing. That's when my first brain went, wait a minute, with or without treatment, I have the same benefit. And so I had made up my mind in that moment. Well, even, they're telling me I can't do the treatment and they're telling me if I did, it wouldn't make a difference. And so I made that decision in a flash because at first when I heard you have cancer and you have months to live, I was relieved hmm. because of where I'd come from. Oh, wow. I saw this as a really good martyred opportunity. Way out right? That I knew that I could probably get a lot of the love and support I never got Ooh. with a disease process. Attention. Very different that I could finally put down and be taken care of. Oh, goodness gracious. I had that moment. And, and my imagination is you have seen this. I know I have in my practice that there are a lot of people and it brings me, it, it hurts my heart to think about how many people have sat before me who likely not consciously thought that the only way they would find love, worth, support was to be very, very ill. And so then when they're coming to us for a solution, we have to get that conversation out of the way pretty early on. Are you willing to let go of this disease mm. to find the real source of love? Nisha, that's... That's not something that conventional medicine has any concept of, no. what you're talking about. That disease is something that people might hold on to, yeah. that people might not be able to let go of, that, dare I say, some people want. Yeah, and I don't think that's a want on an intellectual, right, conscious right, right. level Oh, whatsoever. I want to just suffer. Right, right, not at all. Yeah. But I've had, I've had that hard conversation. I'm sure there's people listening right now who are getting very angry about me even bringing this up, which means there's probably a little truth to it. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I'm going to offer that too into the mix of some little cord that's hitting with you because we do have, we do derive a lot of benefit in our culture. If we can't be productive in a certain way, then we must be an invalid to be taken care of. Like we don't have this either or. It's like very polarized of you're either hyperproductive or you're hyper disabled. Right. And nary the two shall meet. And so in that moment, what was very interesting for my process was in all the time I was in the, I'm just ready for an exit strategy and here's my opportunity. And it could be a really good story, good, really good Hallmark made for TV movie. Um, something else happened, unexpected. And it just bring, I can just feel it. I'm just like remembering what this felt like. This sensation that burbled up in me which was actually rage. And what I've since learned about the concept of rage or anger is in Chinese medicine, that concept is about the will to become. And something in me very instinctively knew that, that it basically lit a pilot light for me that was like, you know what? You may not overcome this, you may very well die of this in a couple months, but you're sure as hell going to go down figuring out why this is happening to you because no one else is asking why a 19 year old has terminal ovarian cancer. Right. So I want to figure it out 
so that I can know what I'm dealing with on my way out of this world. And here we are over 32 years later, I'm still figuring it out. I knew just a little bit of your story, Nisha. Um Well, first of all, you are a good emblematic representation of hope. Meaning no matter how dire things may look, there is confidence in a tomorrow. Now, what I always tell our patients is that it's our job to help build that out. Yeah. Now, you begin that process yourself, but there's always hope because I don't know if our listeners understand this. It would have been one thing for you to have come in and being, you know, 48, 58. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 19, this is not a zebra. This is a zebra with purple stripes. Yeah, this is a zebra I mean, on Mars. That's right. <laughs> this is this yeah. is not yeah. even in the context yeah. of zebra. Yeah. That's how out far. That's how far outside the norm this was. And so, not to be fair, not to condone or anything. Right. Yeah, it's exactly. like I can see how they would just. There's no way. There's no way. There's no, no way. No construct for this. You cannot see what has never been. But then yeah. you took this. Yeah. Obviously, was it a little bit of a personal self-study? Beyond, it was the only, it was the only thing I had. It's the only thing I could do. Yeah. You know, so this you went is, on to naturopathic medical school. Well, it still took, because this is 1991. Okay. I did not start naturopathic medical school till 96. Oh, wow. Which is amazing that I was still alive, Yeah. number yeah. one. Uh, yeah, you beat three months, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. And so for me, um, the first thing that happened is I really locked down. I had a lockdown into deep self-preservation because I also knew... First of all, I was not giving an option. First of all, I had no resources to even do anything. But I also something instinctively knew in that moment that I took off, um, summer of 1990 to move to Colorado to get away from my trauma, I also knew somehow I needed to do more than just that. I needed to do a lot more. Here's where you start to look at moments where God's spirit, however you understand it, intervenes in a way that surprises you. So in my college at that time, in my town at that time, Three things aligned, actually four things aligned, actually five things aligned that were quite beautiful. Number one, in my college, there became free counseling. So that was already there. And the person that I found in the counseling center that I could confide in, because I didn't want anybody to know. Because when you're 19 years old, especially in 1991, this was a lot of shame for me to have this diagnosis. Because I also suspected, because of my history of extreme sexual abuse, I, I suspected that that played a role and it was in my mind at that time, part of it was me feeling that it was my fault. Now, again, I'm so far out from that, that that is not a like, I know that is not the case, but my 19 year old self didn't know that. So I needed a place to like hunker down and have this comfort. I still wanted to be a normal person. I finally got out of what I perceived was the trauma environment, finally moved to a place to get my life started. And I wanted to be treated like a normal person until I died. That was really what I was like. I don't need anybody to like feel sorry for me. As soon as, as, soon as I made the decision to like figure it out, I also didn't want to be a victim. Yeah. So this woman I end up with, she's brand new to the college and she's bringing a new, a new tool to the mix that no one's ever heard of this thing called EMDR. I was her first patient. Oh, wow. At a time when, and this is an eye movement therapy to dislodge extreme, extreme trauma. Wow. That was incredibly powerful for me. Like that is still a tool that I am a go-to for myself and for others to recommend because it's so powerful mm -hmm. to clear 
trauma in a non let's relive it and rehash it way. It's like releasing it from the, 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 the wiring, right. the neural pathways. So weird and accidental. The other thing is at that time, an acupuncturist had moved to our, who got set up shop in our town. She was originally a nurse who decided to go back to acupuncture school and she became my pain management person. The other thing is I worked as a, as a reproductive counselor and would pack up people's birth control pills at the local Planned Parenthood. That's what I did because they were all about education. Mm -hmm. That was their realm there. And the doctors knew what was going on with me and decided he would run my lab work and do my ultrasounds, my, my vaginal ultrasounds for ongoing examinations. Right. So I had someone willing to just do that for free. The other thing that happened is a naturopath moved to my town who ended up later becoming my mentor and whose practice I eventually took over many moons later. And then the other thing is we had a little health food store that opened up in town where I could work and get a major discount, plus take home food that was being thrown away and supplements that had come back returned unopened. And so I could resource for myself all of these people. Like I traded with the acupuncturist by cleaning her office. Hmm. Okay, I traded, you know, like I worked in a place where they could do healthcare on me and just like on the sly do things. So what I learned very quickly about myself and what I know of and who I am still today, I am resilient and resourceful. Uh, that's an understatement. Yeah. And so those were the things that started to happen for me. The other thing that happened is because of the bowel blockage, I couldn't eat. And now, fast forward to what we know today. We learned things like from Dr. Moreshi from 1909 that fasting is one of the most powerful ways to resolve things like ascites and tumor burden. So how weird that accidentally I was given something that actually likely saved my life. So you you embraced a lot of the strategies that really hadn't hit mainstream at no, that point. No, even another 30 years where yeah. they had, or 25 years where they started to even trickle into mainstream. I didn't know that. And because I was at a small liberal arts, small four-year liberal arts school in Durango, Colorado in early 90s that was very underfunded, they had a lot of old antiquated textbooks. And I worked in the library for work study. And I probably shouldn't have this out here, but at that time there were no security cameras and things. I would, because I was so poor, I would sleep in the library. I was like shower at the gym, at the school. I mean, I was sort of floating homelessly somewhat throughout that time financially. And I would stumble, I ended up stumbling across the work of this crazy guy, this Otto Warburg fella from the 1920s. And so here it is, I'm in my anatomy and physiology courses, I'm in my biochemistry courses, my organic chem courses, and I'm learning about the concept of cancer as the two hit theory, and it is not resonating with me. It's not resonating with you me. You haven't been on the earth long enough to have a two hit theory. Exactly. And that's what I was like, I'm not on the earth long enough to have a two hit theory, this doesn't fit. And so suddenly I'm in there digging through the archives on the microfish and the Dewey Decimal System. Oh boy, oh yeah. All right, there is no That's, Dr. Google. We're, we're going back. We're going back when there was rotary phones, okay. my you, friends. You just dated yourself. I, I did, did not do that. Exactly, I did not do that. Exactly. <laughs> but that's where I started running across things started to make sense to me. But the very first book I picked up when that doctor, when, the, when I got out of the um, ER and then I had my follow-up meeting with the oncologist, and then I got my final um, uh, pathology information at that time and met with them again. And basically everyone said, there's nothing we can do for you. I mean, I'm just summarizing. When that visit happened on, April, on October 21st, I went to the library in my town and just went to, I don't even know, I'm a girl from Kansas, I have no idea. I'm a scientist, I'm not woo, I'm not esoteric. 
those all those things I told you about the acupuncturist, the naturopath, the health food store, those things came after this moment. I walk in and this book seemingly jumps off the shelf to me. And it's a book by this, I could not even pronounce it, this crazy deep pack Chopra and a book called Quantum Healing. Mm. Okay, a girl from Kansas from this realm, sitting down, I sat down and I inhaled that book in two hours sitting on the floor of that library that afternoon with the fall sun coming in through that window. And that moment I had my own, what that book is about is a quantum leap, a paradigm shift. And I had that experience, I had that moment. And that's what opened up pathways of just curiosity of saying, well, what if I'm hearing about acupuncture might be helpful for pain and here's this woman who's willing to try it on me kind of felt sorry, like all these people felt sorry for me. And they knew a little bit of what was going on. Everybody, I would give them a little bit of the information because I knew they would not take me on if they had all the story. I was so afraid I would be kicked out of school if people knew what was going on. But I had one professor who, when I passed out in his class and was rushed off by an ambulance, um, he needed to know what was going on with me. You know, I told him. My, the team, the, the doctor that, were, that did my blood work and the ultra, vaginal ultrasounds knew what was going on. And the guy who later became my roommate, really good and really close friend, and later my boyfriend and later my husband, was the only other person who had the whole story. Hmm. And so really it was in a vault for a very long time. In fact, when I went and applied to medical school, there was only one doctor who knew what was actually going on for me, who was my doctor all through my medical school training, who kept up with all of my thing because I was afraid they wouldn't let me into school. It's a lot. Someday the story will come out in its entirety because it's volumes. You, you need to tell it because, and this is why, because let me tell you, I had a whole list of things I wanted Sorry. to talk. No, 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 <laughs> that I wanted to talk about. But I think it's important that you had the chance to tell the reality of that story because we'll try to wrap up mm-hmm. the last part of this. I think by focusing on you were a, a young lady let's be honest, you were barely an adult yeah. Yeah. that became a patient. Yeah. Not just a patient, but a patient With no that resources. was told three months to live yeah. without resources. Yeah. Yep. Then you became a doctor. Yeah. So my question to you would be, do you think this has made you a better doctor than if you had not had that diagnosis, that experience? And what did you know and think about cancer before the diagnosis? And then what did you think about it? And what do you think about it today? So I was very rigid in my thinking of that science had all the answers and the science in which we understand it had the answers. I was very much like pre-med, here we go, linear and that thinking. This experience took me out of linearity in a, in a big way and, and help me really sort of uh, deconstruct the concept of time, reality, question everything. It put me into a place of questioning everything. It took me out of my linear way of thinking and put me into a systems thinking. Hmm. It completely changed my neural pathways in that instant. It blew open something in me that had, was like no way to every way. That was huge. The other side is I had the fantasy of the type of doctor I was going to be was going to be that very practical data driven, right? Mm -hmm. And I still am. That's still very woven in here. But the story of that, the data, the the story is still data. Mm -hmm. 
the the circumstances, the chronology is still data. The essence of that is still data. And the the things I had to fine tune that I always had innately, but had been suppressed for a variety of reasons in the environment in which I came from. Um, I always had instinct. I always had survival. Survival. I always had resilience and resourcefulness. Self, all self. That was the gift at the time. But I will tell you later that flipped to be the curse. When you are an island. Yeah. Because we're not meant to be an island. But it was what I needed to survive through that process. And for sure, it's made me a much better doctor. It's made me a much better listener. And I was telling you and Tammy last night at dinner that there was an experience I had with kind of a, like a shamanic experience that I had where someone said, you are carrying, because there was a time when I talked about that switch, when I realized me being an island was harmful is when I realized I was also not only carrying my trauma and burden, but I also was taking on everybody else's because I could. Just because you can does not mean you should. And I was thinking that somehow I had to fix it, that it was up to me. And so one of the big humbling parts of what's changed in my last probably 10, 15 years of practice is that I realize I am not the healer. It is not about me. I am a vessel. Hmm. And it moves through me and should not be of me. And so that was a place that took my, my skills as a clinician to another level that suddenly I could start to break free from survival into thrival, into understanding the vessel of, of how, how we as humanity should interact with each other, not in a, not in a silo, not in a, uh, holier than thou God, you know, God complex. Yeah. I can fix this kind of way. And so it, it, my, even my practice and my philosophy evolved and is continuing to in this, in this time. And so what was interesting is while I was in private practice and got known for cancer after a while, after I tried very hard not to do it, I, in fact, I was telling you guys last night, started out and wanted to be a midwife when I finally got out. So like, good, I'm going to deal with birth because I already was close. I already was in the death zone. And after a while of that, I was like, oh God, I really like to sleep. And these little guys do not come between nine and five. So (laughs) darn it. You know, one and two a.m. Right, right, right. right. And so what was interesting is there was a moment in my practice that it was also sitting in front of a group of women at a, at a um, gathering, a retreat where I realized in this moment, because we were all talking about a woman that we had just lost that week. And I realized in that moment, I had this huge epiphany that I had ushered 36 beings into this world. And I had ushered 36 beings out of this world. And it was like, I hit that, that fulcrum. And I realized for me in that moment that they are identical doorways and that how we choose to move through them and look at them also changes our perspective of how to face them. Hmm. Because like in the birthing process, if a woman is in deep fear, she doesn't progress. She fails to progress and move through what's literally known as the transition phase, right? right? Whereas the same thing in death, when we are so resistant and so fearful of dying, we actually stop living. And that was a something that it caught me in that moment of people's like, how are you different than other people on this journey? Because I had no fear of death all the way back then, because I was told I was gonna die and I just expected that was what was gonna happen. And as I continued to live sort of surprisingly so, the one thing I carry differently than many others is that I did not carry that fear of dying. And instead it started to free me much more up because what I had lived up to that night, that first, my pre-cancer life was I was afraid to live. Mm. And suddenly I was no longer afraid to live. And I lived the, I lived the hell out of life. 
I mean, it is so rich and so beautiful, even in the horrors and atrocities and challenges of what it can be sometimes. And so that was something that shifted for me and that allowed me to be really in that space with patients in that, in that transition. So clearly it's made you a better physician. A hundred percent. You know, the word that comes to my mind is empathy mm. because, you know, not sympathy, which is feeling Very sorry good. for someone, yeah. but empathy is being able to essentially step into the shoes, step into the experience, step into the emotions of what somebody is living and experiencing. Yeah. And it reminds me of this recent article about chat GBT and diagnosis and illnesses and how it wasn't doing a good job. Mm. And I was asked to write an article about it. And I was like, of mm. course it can't connect with humans. Mm. It is not human. It has no concept of the human experience. So your experience, of course, you would rather not have had it. Of course, yeah. We'll wrap this up here and I've gone, we've gone long, but it's because this needs, your story needs to be told because it provides the context of who you are. It provides the context of the understanding of the book that you wrote and then what you're doing and how you've become this, this basically this, um, you know, tip of the spear of cancer as a metabolic strategy, cancer as a metabolic disease and not just focusing as disease, as mm -hmm. a disease, but as an opportunity to heal, as you, right. as you say, a message, a, a message. Time. Yeah, cancer actually gave me back my life. There you go. So empathy, yeah. would, your, would you be the doctor you are today if you did not have that experience? No way, no way. And thus, when we talk about medicine being the blend of the science of medicine and the art of medicine, yeah. What you just told is, is um, I would say it's, a, it's both a heart-wrenching story. Sorry. <laughs> um, and because as you were telling, no, 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 this is great. Because as you were telling this, my, 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 my heart was dropping because I fell for you. I, I just, but then as you started to bring yourself out of it in your story, I was like, I can see the joy in this, the hope in this, yeah. and how this will make you somebody, and it has, that will do something amazing. And there's gonna be people out there listening to this that are exactly in the same situation or they have the same history. But where medicine is going is it's either it's lost or it's fast losing that art of medicine. Yeah. Empathy, I think, is art. Yeah. Because yeah. it's emotion, it's that emotional side, it's that human side. The science, the data-driven, we need it. Yeah. We need it. It yeah. is. In essence, it's kind of that 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 tie that raises all ships. Totally. But what leads to innovation? What leads to elevation? What leads to those miraculous right. transfers of, you know, knowledge to change in medicine? It's the art. It is, and it's post-traumatic stress resilience. Yeah. It's when you are hungry. When you are when you are blocked, when you are told it can't be done, is when we have some of the biggest innovations in our time. Had the opportunity to be down here with you for a few days, and you strike me as a lady that doesn't respond well when somebody tells you you can't do really? something. Really? You got that? You picked that up? <laughs> yeah. I, I tell people, I feel like uh, my mom would tell you, because definitely, I don't know if it's, you can't tell much more, but I'm definitely a redhead. And so as I age, it's it's lightening out. But 
uh, literally when someone says it can't be done, like what's that, what's that thing? It's like, well then just please get out of the way yeah. while I keep doing it. But it's almost like, it feels like a double dog dare to me. And so it almost just, it just, it just gives me more of a drive, more of a motivation and more of an inspiration to do it. It just, it just makes that pilot light burn even brighter. Yeah. Well, not too many people have the guts to be as vulnerable as you were. Uh, thank you for doing that because I think you are in, you are hope. You are that hope that people are looking for in that your life shows that there is hope. And again, hope is confidence in a tomorrow, in a future. And you show that in time where you were that, you know, pink zebra, yeah. even there, there's hope. Yeah. And that now that hope is a force yeah. of change. Yeah. So thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing this. I hope that this has um, that this has touched you as much as it touched me. But I think what's important to take from her story is that if your story is similar to this, if your story is not similar to it, because cancer is heterogeneous, right? Yeah. Some people don't have this story and they have cancer. Mm -hmm. But what you see in cancer is there's many common threads: trauma, yeah. stress emotion, these are often there and it's often in the childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And if this is you, there's hope. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's hope. And this hope <laughs> lives, which means you have hope and you can live. Healing is always possible. Mm -hmm. Remember the word disease, disease literally means the lack of wellness. The goal in cancer is not to go to war, to turn your body into the battlefield. Clearly that's not what you did. The role of cancer care today is to heal. And the way you begin healing, honestly, is you teach hope. Yeah. So as I say, hope is a word that means confidence in a future, in a tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And Nasha, you give me hope. And what you're doing with the Metabolic Institute gives me hope. And the changes that we see in medicine gives me hope. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your story. If you want to hear more stories, maybe not quite like this, yeah. <laughs> um, deeper dives into science, integrative oncology, natural and holistic medicine, please like the podcast, share the podcast with those that you would think would benefit from this podcast. Drop us a five-star review. We would appreciate that. Also follow us on any social media that you may want to follow us on because we are there. Just for example, there's Dr.Goodyear, which is Instagram. You'll find us there. And of course the website, drgoodyear.com and over at Brio Medical, brio-medical.com where I'm medical director. And remember this story of hope, it can be you. It can be you. So remember, there's always an opportunity to heal doesn't matter the stage of cancer, stage four or stage 54, as I always say, there's hope. So just like Dr. Nasha Winters is doing, hope it forward. I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear, and we will talk to you soon. Next podcast, we are going to go through her book and we're going to do some deep dives. And then we are going to do some really deep dives on cancer as a metabolic disease, because there's nobody that has the experience that has the ability to bring this into the reality of self and then practice 
of Cancers and Metabolic Disease and Dr. Nasha Winters. Thank you again for joining us.